Hey guys, you're listening to another episode of Eastman's Elevated with Brian Barney. So today on the podcast, we've got on Eastman's own Brandon Mason. Um, you guys are in for a treat. Brandon really knows his stuff. Um, he was a wildlife biologist and then also worked for the Mule Deer Foundation all prior to finding his home at Eastman's there. Um, the guy loves mule deer and, and loves to talk about mule deer hunting. He's he's hunted a bunch of different states and a bunch of different terrain. And, and today's podcast is all about an article he wrote called Outside the Box Mule Deer. Um, you can check out that article. It's coming out in the next issue of Eastman's Hunting Journal. Um, it's the mule deer issue, which is my favorite one of the year. Um, I've got a pro staff article in there. Brandon's got a pro staff article. And then I was just peeking over my editor's shoulder as he was uh, showing me a few of these mule deer that they have in this issue. And man, they just got some tankers, just the, the bucks that we all dream about and the bucks that we're all working hard to harvest. There's 10 or 12 stories of these giant bucks in there and, and how guys accomplished their goals and killed them. So it's just a great issue. You guys are really going to enjoy it. Um, today's podcast is brought to you by Everly Stock Packs. Um, Everly Stock Packs, they do such a good job. They make really durable packs that are made to pack the weight and comfortable with weight. Um, they make this frame that's called their F1 frame. That's what I used last year on my hunts. Um, and, and I paired that. You can use different bags with it. Um, I use the Spike Duffel bag with it, which is a, a minimalist setup that comes in right at about four pounds. Um, I packed a, a black bear with it. With black bears, they weigh a ton when you've got the hide and the head and then, you know, all the meat and everything. And and that was my first experience with it. And then I packed a, a mule deer and an elk with it. But I was really happy with their packs this year. They do a great job. And thanks a bunch for sponsoring Eastman's Elevated. Um, so, boy, let's get this thing rolling. Here we go. Brandon Mason. Okay, I'm live with Brandon Mason here. Brandon, how are you? Good. You? Good. It's good to sit down with you and talk and do a podcast here. We, we've we talked and worked together so much. Um, you're the guy that gets me all my stuff I need for all my hunts. Yeah, we joke and say that we shop at the same store, and I'm the store manager. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, the store of Brandon. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, what I wanted to sit down and talk about, you got this uh, article that's coming out in the Mule Deer issue, yep. and it's called Outside the Box Mule Deer Hunting. I yep. think that's a great topic for the podcast and a bunch of good information for our listeners out there. Um, so what's your premise behind the article? Well, obviously, most of us, when we think mule deer, we think high country mule deer, and especially early season hunting. Most of the western states don't allow too much hunting in the later uh, months the later part of the season due to mule deer being pretty sensitive to hunt during the rut and um, can get kind of hammered and slaughtered during that time if states aren't careful of managing it and I grew up in uh, western North Dakota in the Badlands country and um, so I've always hunted lower elevation mule deer and I've got a, a real passion for that and and uh, I love spending time in the high country too but there's nothing like uh, going back to my old stomping grounds and chasing mule deer in that broken country. Right, and there's so much opportunity in that country, and I hunt both, and I love the high country <clears throat> stuff like you, but I mix in a couple hunts a year that are in these lower elevation sagebrush, um, kind of scrub timber patches, mm-hmm. open country, a lot of folds and coolies and character to the land, but um, there's some big deer to be had in that kind of country. Yeah, there sure is, and part of it is because what you just said, there's it's, it's not your traditional high country basin where you can spend a week glassing that same basin basically and you're going to see everything that's going in and coming out of there the badlands or that broken more breaks type country uh, is really because it's so broken up it's hard to just sit there and glass for days on end in one spot you can do that but you're going to be missing a lot of deer Mm -hmm. because they're around every nook and cranny when the numbers are you know on plentiful amounts right i mean you can find master vantage points in that country but it's almost Mm -hmm. like a a moving vantage point during those morning and evening hours where you take a ridge line where you're just like you say you're peeking into every fold of that country and you maybe you know you pull up your binos and glass that country but you kind of glass it as you're moving or sit down for a few minutes and look over what you can see and then you move another few hundred yards and set up again and start glassing is that how you attack that country out there yeah for the most part i mean there are like you said there are some big canyons that i've hunted where you can spend hours in that one canyon or one spot glassing but for the most part it's also broken that um you know we're, we're taught Patience is the key to hunting high country mule deer and being a fly on the wall and really picking apart the country with your glass, which you still do in the lower elevations. 
but you also have to be more mobile than that. And the country isn't quite as brutal. It's still rough to get around in, but it's a little easier to navigate. It's not at 10,000 plus feet. And uh, so it's a little easier on the body as well. And one of the tricks is just weighing that patience versus aggressiveness. Because in the high country, if you're too aggressive, you're going to blow that buck out of there and probably never see him for the rest of the week that you're there. Mm -hmm. Whereas if uh, mule deer hunting in that broken country, um, there could be another buck right around the corner you're not seeing anyway. And so you'd be aggressive. I mean, you'd still be tactical. You don't want to be foolish in going after the deer, of course. But um, once the opportunity arises, don't don't waste it because <laughs> you may not see him again the next day. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I have this... <clears throat> saying when I describe my stalking as uh, passive-aggressive. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, yeah, you got to pick and choose, but when your moment's right, you got to try to capitalize and try to move yep. in. And you, like you're saying, you never stalk recklessly. You never make yourself where you're going to get seen. You never stalk in the open. You never stalk with a bad wind. But if you can put enough of those things together to get a higher percentage or a high percentage stock, you go for it. It's all in. You try to make it happen. I, I yep. think that's everybody's got to draw that line between being, you know, a, a patient and being aggressive and, you know, patience kills the buck. Yeah. But you're never going to kill him unless you make a move on him. Yeah, absolutely. And I've always been way too cautious over the years and almost thinking too much high country mule deer hunting, even in the lower elevations. And I should have taken opportunities that were there. Another key thing too, when you're hunting in that broken country in that badlands type country um, the wind swirls horribly. And so just because, say, if you spot a buck from, you know, 800 to 1,000 yards away and the wind's not in your favor, you think from that vantage point, it still is worth closing the distance at least a little bit within, say, 100 yards or 150 yards because that wind can be completely different where that buck is, is bedded or where they're feeding or where whatever they're doing. And so sometimes I let the wind almost psych me out a little bit too much because when you get down in those swales and those canyons and, and um, um, you know, coolies and everything else, the wind is completely different. And those bucks rely on that too because it swirls a lot, which is to their favor because it's hard to figure out the right way to stalk them. Yeah, okay. But don't let that deter you from doing it. This past fall, I was uh, back in western North Dakota hunting and I was probably the most aggressive I ever had been. In three and a half days, I had several stocks two of which i got shots on and unfortunately i missed both one i shot low and the other one jumped the string on me but the point is i had more opportunities in those three and a half days than i had had in years because i was finally aggressive like i should have been okay and it was just a great time we had so much fun oh that is so much fun isn't yeah. it i i got pretty aggressive in in montana well i hunt right over the border you what did you refer to that country on eastern montana uh, north dakota it's the the locals call it mondak country a mondak uh, it's I like kind that. of a blending of the two state names yeah okay so i hunt some of that same country you're talking about over there um and i find that the wind the directionals are fairly consistent but like you say once you get in those coolies mm -hmm. and in those lulls and in those draws then you can, you know, there, there's more thermal winds that are playing in there. And then also, you know, if those ridges are on the backside of a lee wind, that wind gets over the top and swirls. So you're right. It's hard to play that wind or know what it's going to do. And you had a good point moving into 150 yards. One of my favorite tactics when, when stalking animals is just to move in striking distance and then kind of reevaluate the situation and kind of reevaluate what my play is from there where I need to be um when I'm monitoring wind like if you can almost be on the same side hill as the deer is on that side hill you can almost start to judge what it's going to be doing over there yeah. but it is just an educated guess I think you are good to try to move in get to a point where you can see that buck again and then kind of reevaluate your stock from there um man it sounds like you had a good hunt in North Dakota with your dad over there I remember talking to that talking about that with you um three days two stocks you shot under one um you got a bunch of plays on bucks out there huh yeah and it was uh right during the rut right when they started running heavily the day before that we got there we talked to some locals and said they hadn't really seen much running behavior and by the time we got there there was just bucks bird dogging you know the whole canyon you know up and down and every single day we had multiple stocking opportunities now sometimes Hunting, rutting deer is a curse too because they don't stay put very long and it's hard to get ahead of them or 
beat them to the punch or stalk on them or whatever because their attention is on other things. They'll end up on private land you can't hunt or just in an area where a stalk with a bow is just not an option. Mm-hmm. But, Isn't uh, that the truth? But it's still a fun challenge, definitely. Yeah, good for you. No, that sounds awesome. <clears throat> uh, what happened on the one you shot low? Um, ironically, we I just stalked on a buck that did what I just said they'll do sometimes. They'll go to private land that you can't hunt too soon. I mean, you, you just can't move quiet enough, fast enough to catch up with them. And he was gone on, on this uh, chunk of private land. We didn't have permission to hunt. And we were mostly hunting in forest service, so we had some permission on some private land as well, but not on the stuff that he went on to. So it was towards the end of the trip, and my dad and my little boy were actually up on a ridge watching this uh, transpire. And I hiked back up uh, to where they were at, and I thought, well, probably the end of the trip, we need to go break down our wall tent and, and uh, get ready to come back home. And uh, as we're ridgeline, talking out loud, not paying attention for deer, I happened to look uh, down to my left, and I caught movement down in the bottom of this valley I just came out of. And here's another really respectable mule deer that's paying no attention to us and looking like he's going to move up this other draw that I've hunted a bunch, and I know how the deer move in and out of there. And uh, so I grabbed an arrow, and I ran down this ridge as fast as I could because that ridge ended right where this other draw started. And that's where he was headed. And I wasn't sure if he was going to be too far above him to where the shot would be too far, but I thought, well, I'm going to try. So I ran down there, knocked an arrow when I got about 10 yards from the edge of that ridge that I was on. And right as I knocked an arrow, the corner of my eye, I saw him coming, and he was definitely within striking distance. I ranged it later because I didn't have time to range it at, at that moment, and it was 53 yards. So with a, a compound bow, and even if you're good with a recurve, it's definitely a doable shot, um, depending on what setup you know, you're shooting. And... He saw me pull back, and he stopped broadside, and I had perfect clearing. As soon as I released the arrow, in my mind, for a split second, I thought, that's a dead deer. I was so excited, and then he jumped the string, and it was so close to hitting him that when he, he came back up, his back hit my fletching just as it was going over his back, and uh, that kind of spiraled past him, and of course, he got out of Dodge after that and didn't want to hang around anymore. <laughs> they but, didn't stick around for oh, another era. Man, it was, I was so convinced I was going to get that one. Oh, man. I just didn't cooperate. Um, yeah, that, that range finding, uh, that's where a lot of my misses come from is not knowing the range. But sometimes that's the only opportunity you're going to yeah. have. You either take the shot and guess at the yardage and you either hit them right or, you know, it's usually hit, hit big or miss big. You either get yeah. them perfect or yeah. you miss them. But... Yeah, and, and 53 is a makeable shot, but when you don't know the range, boy, I mean, you're off by four or five yards. I mean, you got a long draw and a quick arrow, but still, that's uh, it, it's just you got to be right on within a couple yards one way or the other to hit them right. Yeah, definitely. I thought it was a done deal. It was kind of a bummer, but it was actually an opportunity I didn't expect because, we were, like I said, we were getting ready to leave and weren't even looking for deer anymore. And uh, he just sort of walked into our lap, so to speak, and <laughs> I just blew the shot. So. Yeah, for sure. And um, and so I shot with you at the Total Archery Challenge, and you shoot a compound bow, but you shoot it instinctual with yep. no sights. Right. Um, I, I, I just turned 40, and I've been hunting aggressively uh, with a bow since I was 16. So it's been quite a while since I've been bow hunting or since I started. And <clears throat> back in those days... Um, that was in the early 90s, and uh, sights were around, but they were pretty pretty limited, you know, brass sight pins that were hard to adjust. I mean, the, now you can put a good, uh, say, a Spot Hog or Black Gold or, and, you know, name any of the brands out there now that are really, I mean, within 30 minutes, you can have a sight pretty dialed in. I mean, you still need to tweak it a little bit after that, but, you know, pretty quick to set up, and it just wasn't that case back then. In fact, I used to shoot worse with sights than without and I didn't like how it inhibited my just natural hunting ability I guess and so I I tried them for a while and I took them off and I was shooting so much better without them and I had a couple other guys in our archery club that were really good instinctive shooters and kind of motivated me to to go that route and quite honestly I've never regretted it Um, any of my misses like that if like the ones I just described they would have been misses with sights too because I just didn't have time to range it and get my mind around it they're quick shots um, but, uh, guys at the office tease me all the time and even some people watch our TV show or whatever, they'll send in some kind of crazy comments to Facebook or to our blog or whatever and beat me up about it a little bit. But one thing that they don't understand, it's not like I just picked up a bow yesterday and started shooting like this. I've got, you know, over 20 years of dialing in my sights and my brain 
And it's just like learning how to throw a baseball. When you're a little kid, you don't know exactly how to judge trajectory and the strength you need, and you throw all over the place. And people forget that. It took you a long time as a kid to learn how to throw a ball accurately. And it's kind of the same way of shooting instinctively. It may take some people longer than others to figure it out. But once you've got it, it's kind of like riding a bicycle. It's something that you don't forget. Yeah, so. for sure. Well, and, and you're really good at it, shooting instinctual. Um, and, and there are. there There's places where you suffer a little bit, you know, maybe precision accuracy, long range. But at the same time, you, you gain from it, too, yeah. because you're quicker. You don't need, like you say, it's throwing a baseball and it's... You can almost look at your target and judge it better. Yep. Your shot's quicker. Um, you don't deal with target panic because you're not trying to aim this precision small pin at something. And, and then you're gaining all the benefits from a compound bow versus a traditional bow, but still shooting it in a traditional manner. So, no, I think it's awesome. I was super impressed is the reason I asked um, from shooting with you at the archery challenge. I think it's really cool to get a feel for a bow like that. Yeah, it's pretty neat. That in a lot of people can't figure out how I do that with a compound because you're, you know, you associate instinctive shooting with a recurve, and I shoot a recurve too, and I love you know the traditional uh, bow hunting style. But when I'm shooting my compound, what a lot of people don't get, it's actually way easier to shoot a compound instinctively than it is a recurve, because current compound bows shoot so flat and so accurately out to far distances. That really from 40 yards and under, I don't even think about it. I don't change my point of aim hardly. They're shooting so um, close to center at those close ranges that it's really way, I mean, it's 10 times easier than shooting a recurve. And then once you get out to that 50, 60, 70, and I, I self-limit myself to 60 and under from a hunting standpoint, I just personally, even if I use sights, I just wouldn't feel comfortable shooting past mm-hmm. that. And, um, and so 60 and 50, there's different points of aim. And then it becomes a, a, a factor of how familiar you are with the bow you're using. And we're blessed here to, we get to shoot the newest, hottest compound bow every year, which is cool. But from my perspective, I kind of want to shoot the same one for a long time because I have a feel for that bow. And I just get that really dialed in and, and used to it. And then we get the new bows for the year. You know, it's kind of the joke, hashtag first world problems, right? But, <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was going to say is poor you. you yeah. Shoot a new bow. <laughs> but no, I hear you. Getting a feel for a bow is, is a major thing. And even shooting uh, sights and, and triggers and different draw lengths, it does, you do build a relationship with a bow. And, yeah. and to have a bow... You know, I almost think the correct amount and the, the bow manufacturers probably wouldn't agree, but like a three to five year period with a bow, Definitely. you build a really good relationship with it. But, you know, nowadays I, I've shot so many new ones and set them up that I almost learn from setting up and shooting a new bow and get a feel for them pretty quick. But yeah, yeah. there is a relationship you build with it for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But now there's times that I, I think maybe I'm uh, foolish for not using size, but then most of the time, you know, I'm, I, 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 Describe it this way. I told my wife when I, I did have a, a really nice spot hog sight on my bow the first year, I switched back to shooting a compound and um, I was shooting really well with it and everything. But and I actually, I hunted with that setup uh, the first year I was hunting on Eastman's Hunting TV. And I just I came back after that fall and I took everything back off the bow. I went back to simplicity and I told my wife it was, I felt like a dog with a muzzle on. Like I couldn't be who I was. I couldn't. I just was not comfortable. I relied too much on the rangefinder. I just absolutely hated it. And uh, I loved it when I was target shooting because shooting with sights on, man, you're just so dialed in and it's awesome how the tight groups you get. But from a hunting standpoint, just the instinctive shooting for me is just, I just think it's part of the pure form of archery. I just yeah. love it. Yeah, way to stick to your guns and commit to it and keep with it. Yeah, you're really good at it. Uh, so like I say, I think you're making the right move. And, and uh, when you talk about it, you account your misses and say, well, I would have missed with the site too. I mean, that's really where you can dissect it a little bit and decide right. that, you know, I am making the right move. And and if you enjoy to do it that way, well, that's the way you should do it. No, I think it's right. really cool. And if I, if I had any concern at all about making unethical shots, I wouldn't do it. I mean, I... I kind of pride myself on being a pretty ethical hunter. And uh, I, I, if I thought that I couldn't make a, a great shot on an animal and had the potential to wound him with every shot, I, I definitely wouldn't do it. It's something I'm super confident in. And I know it's hard for people to understand that because most people don't do that with a compound bow. 
But once you've got it down, like I said, it's just like learning a, how to ride a bicycle. You, mm-hmm. you pretty much got it. I mean, there's little tweaks here and there with different bows, like we said, but it's pretty consistent for the most part. Yeah, for sure. Um, you, you were able to harvest an antelope I saw this year with your bow? Yep. I shot a, a respectable antelope here in Wyoming. Um, we kind of had a tough year. That um, We had an easy winter, but we didn't get moisture at the right times of the year to promote the, the horn growth, you know, when you really need it. And so we saw just a lot of average bucks. And so I went after one of the bigger ones that we saw after uh, several days of hunting and uh, was able to get within 40 yards of him. And he cooperated and stood up out of his bed and stood up and stretched and turned around and looked at me. And, and I hit him in the wheelhouse. So it worked out perfect. Oh, good for you. Those antelope can jump a string, too. Oh, yeah. I was Antelope do make me uh, a little nervous just because of their smaller body size. And yes. Sometimes you're really pushing that effective range. They're a long-range animal, aren't I mean, they? I mean, to get within... 60 yards of an antelope you can pretty much do all day long if you're willing to belly crawl but closing it from my like i said my personal effective range of 60 yards and under on an antelope i mean you could stock on 20 antelope and not have that opportunity so oh for sure i was, I was uh, thankful for the opportunity and, and it's all about the country you're hunting too if you're yeah. hunting them in open country i don't know sometimes i think that 60 is pretty challenging <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely but, but yeah no good for you um yeah, so I, I didn't mean to get off the mule deer subject because I think that hunt, that, that mule deer, I love the title of your, or however you're going to title that outside the box mule deer hunting, but I, I just think you hunt North Dakota quite a bit, but there's so much opportunity to hunt lowland, sagebrush, coulee country throughout the West in every yep. Western state, right? Yeah, definitely. In fact, the best mule deer that I've seen since I've lived in Wyoming, which has been almost seven years now, um, has not been in the high country. And I know, obviously, there are hellacious bucks up in the high country. I've put on a lot of miles in the high country since I moved here. And to date, the biggest bucks I've seen, and not just one of them, several of them, was when I drew a third-choice antelope tag here in Wyoming, oh, five or six years ago. And it was big, wide-open um, valleys full of sagebrush that... If, you, if you're not patient and you don't use your glass to your advantage, you'd get up there and say, this is just a, a desolate wasteland of sagebrush. There can't possibly be anything there. Now, the key to that area, there was water, and it was a drought year, and there was still water there, so a lot of the animals were kind of congregated in that general vicinity. But we were looking for antelope, and man, did we see some big sagebrush mule there. I mean, places you, even me as a badlands hunter, I probably wouldn't have looked for them. And it looked like those pictures of the Magnificent Seven that you see or something, just gigantic mule deer out in the sage that it's a hard unit to draw. So that's part of the reason why they were there. And also, it's just a place you wouldn't, most guys wouldn't think of looking for them. And we see that every year. The Eastmans go down in southwestern Wyoming and hunt down there in that sagebrush country. And man, there's just some big deer out there. And uh, But it's a, a little bit different style of hunting. It's not for everybody. And sometimes the temperatures are warmer. You're not in that cool high country air. And you got to deal with rattlesnakes and, and scorpions and, and uh, cactus and all those things we don't like to deal with too much and, and running out of water. And uh, so, you know, there's some preparation you need to do. And you almost need to retrain your brain on how you're going to pursue these deer. But, man, they're there. And it is, it is so fun to stalk a buck that's laying in the sagebrush. And you just see those tips of those antlers turning here and there in the in the sage and man it, there's just nothing like it in my opinion yeah for sure so that wyoming unit where you saw those nice bucks it's a tougher draw to draw a mule deer you haven't drawn that one yet since no i put in every year and i haven't okay. drawn it so and you know here in wyoming as residents we don't we don't get preference points um and so it's literally a luck of the draw every single year oh it's all random draw. it's all random for residents here um except for some of the trophy species but for deer elk and antelope we do not get preference points a lot of people don't know that and so you can hunt general uh, seasons which there's some good hunting to be had there but for mule deer because they don't handle pressure very well they uh you know the, the key to having sound mule deer populations most of the time it's you have to limit opportunity unfortunately for sportsmen mm-hmm. but then once you finally draw the tag man the, the hunting can be just epic and if I ever draw that tag, it's going to be a good one. <laughs> it's it's less than a 10% chance of drawing for a resident here. That's pretty rough. Why don't you talk Wyoming into doing a bow-only tag for that unit? Oh, I would love to do that. There's a, <laughs> there's a lot of things I would love to 
talk to the game and fish department about or to the legislative session or something. But uh, I've found since I've moved here, I've been pretty vocal about my thoughts on how some of that should be done. And overall, our game and fish does a good job. But, you know, we all have our little pet projects that we want to see done. And I'm kind of in the minority here when it comes to some of the suggestions I have. So I haven't picked that battle yet. If I had everybody I knew was all in favor of it and it would give me a pretty good sense of what the general population of Wyoming would support, I would probably talk to my local representative to introduce a bill on that or even talk to the game fish themselves. But I think I'd be swimming upstream. (laughs) For sure. But yeah, Wyoming, they don't give too much opportunity to the archer. Um, I mean, they do. They have uh, special seasons, but... You know, like the the tag I had to draw this year, I had to draw a rifle tag for Wyoming to right. be able to hunt with my bow, right. even though I never planned to hunt with a rifle. But yeah, I hear you. we got to pick and choose our battles and be happy for what we have and the, the management practices that we do have. But man, it sure would be nice to see an early archery season here. Oh Archery-only yeah. tags. I know they give some, some archery-only for some of their elk units and that, mm-hmm. but... Man, if they could go archery only in a few more of these mule deer spots, uh, we'd sure have some good hunting. Yeah, definitely. You know, I don't know how the general public would would react to that. I know that, you know, a lot of people have been born and raised here that have hunted, you know, certain general units a certain way for their whole lives. And I think the game of fish has to deal with some of the repercussions if they would switch any of that to limited quota. But historically, I've studied a lot of the numbers over the years and and almost every part of Wyoming has produced some tremendous deer when opportunities were limited. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it just depends on what what uh, itch the game of fish is trying to scratch, I guess. with Is it is it big deer in lots of them, or is it public opportunity? And, and it's a tough tough balance that they have to manage, and I feel for them. I've, I've been on that side of the coin, and it's definitely hard to hard to manage all expectations, I guess, of the resource. Yeah, right. You were a biologist. Was that for Wyoming? Uh, no, it was for North Dakota, actually. That's uh, where I'm originally from. And um, I worked um, just under eight years for the North Dakota Game and Fish Department there. So I understand some of the challenges that the departments face of public perception and, and even just expectations. You know, that people, people like me, I'm passionate about uh, archery hunting mule deer and I want a certain season set up just for that that's easy for me to draw and I want my cake and eat it too <laughs> <laughs> and, right. and that's just unfortunately with the limited resource especially the way deer numbers are right now compared to their historic numbers it's you know we all have to sacrifice and that just means a lot of years without drawing a tag unfortunately yep well and and like you say, it's probably not the, the popular idea, but I'd like to see them limit resident tags, too, on sure. mule deer, you know, as they make us non-residents draw for them. But like you say, that's, again, having my cake and eating it, too. That's the yeah. best for me. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's what I want. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm with you there. Um, and, and there's a lot of opportunities in other states. And, and, and also, I think hunting some of these more popular spots, like the spot I hunt in Montana it's general rifle season when I hunt with my bow in there. Right. And, and it has been general rifle, rifle season for residents and non-residents. I mean, it's a free-for-all out yeah. there. There's guys everywhere in every pickup truck, every public land spot. But, you know, the key out there is to get away from the pressure. And where you get away from the pressure is where you find big deer. And whether that's you're limiting the amount of hunters in there or you're making the access tougher to where they don't get pressured in there. And, right. and I found this spot this year. You talk about water, and I don't know where these deer were getting their water, but I had to backpack in, and, and it wasn't too awful bad. I mean, maybe five or six miles, but you're talking five or six miles and some big coolies up and down and up and down, you know, from the Badlands, yep, you know, and, uh, and get back in there, and then there's no water, so you got to pack all your water. Which is, so, I hate packing Yeah, water. it's the heaviest <laughs> thing that. on planet Earth, yeah. right? And so... Uh, had to limit our water consumption, but yeah, we got in there and hunted some really nice bucks. I ended up killing a decent one with my bow, and then I brought my dad back with his rifle, and he was able to get a really nice uh, mature buck. They aged it five and a half or older, a big, nice, heavy one. But uh, nice. uh, but yeah, I think it's getting away from that pressure, and then I've got this tag coming up, which I leave in about a week that's down in New Mexico, and it's this coolie high desert sagebrush country that we're talking about that isn't high country mule deer hunting but it's late season it's winter range uh for these deer down there and it's a bow and arrow tag on the new mexico right over the colorado border that i'm cool. super psyched about yeah they kill some really nice deer in there so be fun to go get chase those things around i love hunting that that lower open glassable terrain boy that stuff's fun to hunt yeah i love that too and and one thing that 
a little tidbit that I just finally put two and two together on here the last few years is for some reason while I'm hunting in that open country that that real broken open country of the breaks badlands type country like we're we're talking about you'll get up on a point and it just looks like there should be deer there it just looks bucky and oftentimes it is and then the canyon right next to it for some reason I just don't get that excited about hunting it but I'll out of uh dedication i guess i think i really should go check that out and i never turn up deer over there so don't let your uh, don't be misled by not listening to your instincts okay so a lot of times what looks good to us will look good to the deer too for whatever reason one draw will be plumb stock full of deer and the next draw just over the ridge they never frequent that canyon unless they're going in and out of it, you know, on escape routes from hunters or, or mountain lions or whatever the case may be. Um, and so I've really started to hone in some of my uh, hunting time in the areas that if I get excited when I get up on a point or I see an area that I didn't even know was there, then I know it's probably worth spending time in, in glassing. And, you know, whether you're in the high country or in the badlands, always give it a morning and an evening glass. Because if you just give it a morning or you just give it an evening and then you're impatient and move too soon, you're going to miss deer that will be coming in and out of those areas at different times of the day. And we've learned that from elk hunting and mule deer hunting up in the high country. Um, That's where patience is the key. And another thing that a lot of mule deer hunters or prospective mule deer hunters overlook, no matter which elevation you're hunting at, is mule deer love aspens. And a lot of hardcore mule deer people know that, but some guys fail to put two and two together. There's other country that will look really good, has all the escape cover they need. It's got a lot of juniper or cedar type cover, a lot of nice sagebrush, water sources, and there will be no mule deer there for some reason. And less than a mile away, there's a huge pocket of aspens, and that will be loaded with mule deer. And once you put two and two together on that, Man, the numbers of deer that you'll consistently see without even having to cover really a lot of country will just amaze you, and you'll be seeing them with less effort. You know, you'll be working harder instead of or working smarter instead of harder. Yeah, don't want to work harder, not smarter, right? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. Uh, Or I think that's a great tip with the aspens that I don't hunt. I hunt a lot of different country out west. I haven't hunted a lot of country with aspens lowland. I don't know if it's because I'm hunting high country in that state or low country, but that's a great tip for me. I'm going to take that to heart and really pay attention to those aspen patches when I do get close to them and take a look at them. Yeah, and one thing that a lot of people besides the land management personnel aren't really fully aware of is aspens are, I think, directly tied to our mule deer decline that we're seeing across the West. Aspens are one of the fastest disappearing little micro-ecosystems in the, in the western landscape because they're not being managed for properly, or at least they weren't a number of years ago. Now, land managers have become aware of that, and they're starting to be, be a lot more intentional aspen management, um, overgrazing from elk, deer, uh, sometimes livestock, can hammer these, uh, the, the suckering out of the aspens coming up. And um, really, when you, I, I heard in a meeting one time when I was still working in the wildlife management field that if you come up on an aspen stand and all you see is big, tall aspens with nothing but that beautiful white bark standing there and no, none of that new gro- growth coming up to meet that, you're looking at a dying aspen stand. Oh, wow. And chances are the big game animals won't be there either because they've either eaten themselves out of house and home or, um, like I said, livestock has, or whatever the case may be. But um, it's just those little tidbits that you pick up on that you can start keying in on key habitat. So you start teaming up remote country with aspens and good water sources, you know, lower disturbance, maybe some areas of not very high predator numbers. All of a sudden you're putting, you know, the equation together. There's mule deer here. And another thing is, you know, a lot of times if you're really, if you're trying to find a mule deer, especially in the high country, and all you're seeing is elk, it's time to relocate. Yep. The two do not coexist in large numbers together. It's just a fact. They compete for food sources. And there's times where I try to make a mule deer appear, even though I'm seeing nothing but elk, because it it looks so great for mule deer, but it's just a a basin or a, a, a series of canyons are full of elk, you might as well you might as well move and find a different location or call it a hunt because chances are you are not gonna find 
mule deer in any sort of prevalence there. Yeah, that's another great tip. Um, so mule deer, you say water. You know, I, I don't know if maybe I'm just not finding the water source a lot, but I hunt a lot of dry country for mule deer. Now, I know in that high country, they get a lot of moisture from their feed. Yeah. And, and so, you know, they don't even need water in the high country for those early summer months just because they get so much moisture in their feed. Now, I know as we move lower and we're talking about this lowland country, they're probably going to need to drink. But a lot of this country I'm hunting is pretty dry. Am I right. just not finding their water source? Or are they also getting it from their food or the dew off the grass? They're getting some of it from their food, but a lot of times in the arid, lower uh, elevations, you don't openly see great big water sources, or even because a lot of the streams are dried up until there's a gully washer uh, rain event that happens. Yep. But the the breaks and the badlands and all that that type of open country is full of little seeps and springs and they're real subtle in fact a lot of land managers have made it a policy that they're not going to do any water improvement projects because even though it makes people feel good and sportsmen's groups feel good that they put uh, a guzzler in or whatever it was completely unnecessary because there are so many little water resources that are seeping from here and seeping from there and if you're ever going to scout that the best way to scout it is to go back after hunting season in the dead of winter when things are frozen up and they'll look like mini frozen waterfalls almost because they keep seeping in the winter but it freezes as soon as it comes out so you'll have this big mound of frozen ice that looked like it tried to flow because it slowly freezes as it's coming out of there and you'll know that's where the deer have been getting their water and it'll be littered with tracks littered with tracks oh super interesting yeah and and i know that's a big key to my hunting high country mule deer is not the water seeps so much for the deer, but more for me, right. <laughs> where, where I can survive and refill my water and live where no other human can live on the top of the mountain because I know of some seep or spring at 9,000 feet. And, yep. and maybe that's where deer are getting some of their moisture too. I know in the high country, they don't need quite as much because they get a lot from that green feed. Yep. But in this lower land, yeah, I almost feel like they need water, but I'm not finding much water hiking all over through that country. So I like that late season looking for springs and seeps or even while you're hunting. And a lot of it's just walking some of those bottoms, right? And some of those yep. spur bottoms and things and just finding a little lowland one that's, that is seeping a little water. But yeah, I, I figured they had to get water in those spots. Uh, so I guess I'm just not finding it. And if I want to survive back like in this spot I found this year where I'm packing all my water back in there, man, I need to find one of these springs or one of these seeps these deer are drinking out of. Yep, and there's even some other areas like in uh, the washouts where when they get a major rain event, it flows down uh, the draws and canyons and everything. And then there'll usually be, a, you know what I'm talking about, a yep. little shelf there. Yep. And then it dumps off. And it's a, a mini canyon, a little washout in there that is the, the water drainage, basically, and where it flows into another major river system. Well, even if it's not a flowing creek or a flowing river, a lot of times right where it drops off, there's a little pool of water there, even when everything else is dry, because it hits with such force, it creates a, just a tiny little mini basin. And those deer will lay in those basins in the cool clay back in the shade in the hot weather. You've got a water source right there. You literally cannot see them unless they choose to be seen. There are so many times, I can't tell you how many stories, how many times that I have peaked down still hunting during the middle of the day, Labor Day weekend, and it's 100 degrees outside, and you're still hunting looking for these bedded animals. And you peek up, peek up and over into these washouts, and you just look down in there. There was nothing bedded there. There was nothing laying there. And you'll stop to get a drink of water and the biggest mule deer you've ever seen in your life will come busting out of there because when that water falls down in there, it not only hits and forms a little pool, but it also backwashes a little cave out almost underneath mm -hmm. there. And those big old bucks will bed in that cool clay. Nothing will ever see them until they choose to come out, which of course a lot of times is after dark. And so it doesn't even really pay to glass them. So there's a lot of really good still hunting opportunities you can do too down there. And you've got to be patient. Got to be patient. And, and, you know, like ground out there is so dry and crunchy that you move at a snail's pace. And it never fails. The one that you're lazy on is the one that a buck's lazy <laughs> And you blow them out of there. Why is it always that way? I don't know. But it is for me anyway. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
Yeah, good. So you'll still hunt throughout the middle of the day some of those canyons and coolies and look for bedded bucks in there to kind of be productive in the middle of the day. Yeah, exactly. Especially during the early part of September. Mm -hmm. Um, You'll see a lot of deer in their bachelor groups, of course, when you're glassing in the evening and in the mornings. But, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with going back to camp and resting up during the day if that's what you so choose because the days are so long that it's really hard to hunt that hard for that many hours a day and not get exhausted, you know, after a couple of days. But if you have the energy and you have the the <laughs> desire to pack around some water with you so you, you don't get dehydrated yourself, you can, I mean, that Badlands country, it's almost like it's designed for bow hunting. You can just peek up in and out of all those washouts and in the shade of the junipers. And, and now one, one part of that country I just mentioned, now it's really good to hunt the aspens. You can't really hunt the aspens themselves you hunt the edges of them Mm -hmm. because you cannot stalk a deer with a bow on those aspens if it's a healthy stand and it's really thick with undergrowth it's just impossible i mean that you can't get close to an animal with a bow Mm -hmm. unless you're hunting a a deer that's you know deaf or something but (laughs) (laughs) well and that's how i spend a lot of the middles of my days is glassing those stands, you know, where if you can locate a buck, you know, maybe you can stalk him where he's at in that stand of timber. But if not, then you play him in the evening where he right. comes out and where he exits, hunting the edges like you're talking about. But I, I love to look over north side timber and north side timber patches during the middle of the day. And I feel like I'm covering a lot of country. So I'm, yeah. I'm looking for vantage points and hiking to vantage points where I can sit down and spend a couple hours and look over all that cover and try to pick one out of there. You yeah. know, then I have one to hunt in the evening or the afternoon or maybe he's in a good spot where I can stalk him. But that's how I spend a lot of the middle of my days hunting those things. Yeah. 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 And, and it's important, I think, you know, we talked about bucky areas and, and what feels bucky to you, it, it, the, you know, there's probably bucks in it. Uh, and it is important to kind of, anytime you're hunting country, to kind of glass all of it as you go and find what the deer like as well. And that kind of, that experience gives you what's bucky and what's not bucky. But what I was going to say is I think it's super important to hunt in this lowland country to not get caught with your pants down. Yeah. <laughs> like not come over too far over a ridgeline or feel like there's no deer there yeah. or not sit down you know, skyline yourself out as you're trying to find a vantage point. Like you, you really got to hunt this, uh, you got to hunt it intelligently and not give yourself away because the minute you get lazy, just like you were talking about still hunting, the moment you get lazy, that's where a buck is. The moment you get lazy coming over a canyon or coming over a coulee or trying to grab a vantage point, the minute you go too fast, you bust that huge giant buck up. It's probably the biggest one you've seen all trip, and he relocates miles away where you never find him. And so each little piece of country that you uncover that shows itself to you, you need to really sit down and take a look at it and and really sneak over the tops of these ridgelines, sit yourself down and pan over it. And even though we talk about a moving vantage point, I think it's still important that every time you can see a new piece of country, you sit down and you look it over yep. and you make sure because those gray-bodied deer blend in oh, like boy. nothing, even in wide open sagebrush. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, one of the things that Mike Eastman has talked about for decades is the term or the phrase glassing with the grain of the terrain. And at first I didn't really understand what he was talking about there. I didn't get the mindset. And I heard him explain it a little more clearly one time that basically what you just said don't overlook what's right in front of you and don't take for granted that just because you're there that there isn't a deer there too within even a couple hundred yards so if you come into an area and you've been undetected and you sit in front of some trees or right below the ridge line or whatever so you're not skylined start with that country that's right in front of your face and move out so glass close and then the next layer and the next layer and the next layer because, man, there's been so many times where I've sat down and I'm glassing way across a canyon. Miles, right? Yeah, miles. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm thinking, I got, you know, they can't possibly be here. They've got to be way over there. You know, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. And I keep uh, trying to turn up deer. And it's uh, this one time in particular, I remember my dad and I were glassing and there was a fresh snow that night. But it, it didn't dump on us. So is it? there's still a lot of intermingled snow with cover which of course mule deer just disappearing because of their white rumps and their the white parts of their face and everything and their gray bodies, they just blend into that and that makes snow cover. And here we are glassing way down this canyon and I stopped glassing for a second, put my binoculars down and I was just looking side to side with, with my bare eyes and I had this creepy feeling like something was watching us. 
and it was like one of those three-dimensional uh, pictures that you stare at long enough and the image pops out <laughs> yeah. yeah. Less than 100 yards away, there was a group of 20 mule deer on the snowy hillside peering a hole right through us, like, what are you doing here? And it was, it was kind of creepy because all of a sudden, boom, there they were. And uh, they were there the whole time. Even when we walked right in there, we didn't even see them because we were too concerned, too focused with the vantage points you know, way off in the distance instead of looking at what's right in front of our faces. You're so right. You have to be diligent and look yeah. right below you. I find in the high country too, I sit on a drainage and I look across and I'm not looking right below me and there can be deer right below you. And, and just like you're saying, I one of the best bucks I ever shot, eastern Montana, sagebrush country, coolie country, and I was hunting with my buddy and we hiked way back in there. I mean, I don't know if we were quite 10 miles, but it sure felt like it. Wow. We we hiked to this vantage point in the dark and got up there and, you know, the, the lights came on or maybe it was just a little bit after light and we made this, it was a knob and they, there's all this uh, sandstone uh, yeah, yeah. formations out there. So there's this high knob that was sandstone and we got on that high knob and so we careful not to silhouette ourselves and we started picking out deer down below us and, and, uh, Gosh, we picked out quite a few deer down below us and looking around, and we glassed for an hour and a half, maybe even two hours from this vantage point. We watched, we had every deer named down below us and every <laughs> buck, and, you know, I think there was a shooter down below us that didn't quite come off private or something, but, and, and then some other smaller bucks, and as we're glassing around, an hour and a half, two hours goes by, and my buddy Ryan slaps me in the arm and goes, there's a buck right below us. He was 60 yards below us, right bedded, looking down away from us, and, and then, you know, Ryan gave me the stock on the buck and said, well, you shoot him, you're up, you know, and I, I snuck down to about 40 yards and stuck one perfect in his bed, but we had sat on that vantage point for two hours with that deer right below us, right on that deal. Well, there's a crazy story from my childhood. Uh, there was a gentleman that hunted out on this place that we used to hunt uh, one year. He was out there with uh, some people that hunted out there every year. He was on a, a private land um, out in western North Dakota, and uh he shot uh, what's registered in the state books, I think, a 16 by 14 mule deer, 32 inches wide, 18 inch drop tine on one side. The thing is just truly a buck of a on points coming off all over. And he was sitting on the side of the hill, as the story goes, waiting for the rest of us. They were just, you know, like in the old days, just doing big deer drives. That's what they were doing at the time. And he took a break waiting for the rest of his party to come around the other side of the canyon so he wouldn't get too far ahead of them. Well, this buck was farther up that canyon and knew that his buddies were combing it down. And he spotted, the way, the story I've always heard ever since I was young, is this big mule deer that's non-typical was crawling through one of those washouts that I was describing earlier on his knees and he shot him as he was crawling. He only saw him because he happened to stop at the right place at the right time and just accidentally saw him. I mean, that buck was so smart that he was getting out of that canyon undetected like he'd done his whole life, but he didn't bank on the guy sitting on the on the side of the hillside. Huh. It's so wild. That's uh, I have the same story in my family that circulates around <laughs> about the about the biggest buck my grandpa ever shot in, in the Pacific Northwest, full of underbrush and reprod, and, and the biggest buck he ever shot was crawling when really? buddies were driving it and he shot it off a stump and it was crawling right through there and just a giant blacktail it looks oh, like a wow. mule deer it's a 170 or 175 wow. inch blacktail you know but that's that same story it's, yeah. it's running around in my family too but those big bucks they get old for a reason right and they know how to exit where they live they know how to get away without being seen and it's funny you watch a big buck and how he acts and even during the rut those things are wily. They'll let other deer take off across a wide open, and they'll yeah. they'll skirt the edge of the timber, or they'll even stay bedded or stay in a spot longer than another deer will. Yeah. They just, through throughout their years, they learn tricks of the trade, how to survive and how to keep alive, don't they? Oh, totally. And, you know, I, I tell people all the time, um, friends of mine that maybe just started bow hunting or people that don't bow hunt at all, is that the deer are really smart, but think of it from this standpoint – if that's their living room i mean they're there within you know a few square miles every single day of their life that'd be like if you went home after work today and there's your lazy boy recliner that you sit in every night and you know read to your kids or watch tv or whatever it is you do and something was in that chair that was was a camouflage pattern that matched the color of that chair but something felt wrong 
they, we talk about the sixth sense that they have. Well, if somebody came into your living room in a camouflage pattern that mirrored your furniture, or your carpet, or the pictures on your wall, or whatever, it's it man, you couldn't put your finger on it, but something's weird here. There's just a different vibe you get. Um, it just it looks kind of the same, but a little different. And think of that from a deer standpoint. They that's their home. They live there every single day of their life, unless they're migratory and you know hit different areas. But even that, certain times of the season. They're living there every single day. They know what every rock looks like. They know where the water sources are, the food sources, everything. And the the odds of us as archers actually fooling them and getting within archery range, it's amazing that we do it as often as we do. Isn't that the truth? That's yeah. a great way to describe it. I love describing it like your own home. And then to take it even a step further, so you realize when something's wrong or somebody's in there, somebody's been there, if anything's out of place, you know yeah. it and you're on edge. Yeah. But then think of trying to escape your house or like even trying to find your bathroom in the middle of the night. You don't need a light switch. You know which way your walls and your yeah. hallways go and you know how to get to your garage or get to you, whatever it is. But they've got that country memorized like that too. Escape routes, saddles, uh, uh, different coolies and canyons, where they're going to be seen, where they're not going to be seen. Yeah. You're right. They live there 365 days a year. And, and I think that is so. why it's so special when we are successful and when we do pull it off and we do outsmart a buck that's four or five years old. And, and it doesn't happen every day and it doesn't happen all the time. We fail a lot as oh, hunters. I, I fail constantly. And, <laughs> and you try to play high percentage stocks and high percentage plays it's still, it's not going to pay off every time. They're just going to beat you, you know, here and there. And so when you do get it done, it is an accomplishment, especially with a bow and arrow, you know, when you yeah. got to close into those close distances. Well, and it's hard to explain how special it is to somebody that's never done it. I remember uh, when we started getting into archery, my dad had hunted a lot uh, with archery equipment in the 70s and then through careers and children and all that stuff, his time was taken up and he didn't have time to really bow on until I was in high school. And uh, we started, like I said, when I was 16 years old. And I remember kind of resisting it before I actually started shooting. He told me we're going to get into archery. And uh, and I, I remember saying to him, well, why? We rifle hunt. I mean, that's good enough, you know, and I have, I have fun doing that. And what's with the stick and string stuff? You know, it doesn't really interest me. And he said, I just want you to try it. I just want you to try it. I think you'll like it. And, and if you don't, no big deal. But I, I really want you to at least try it once. Oh my word. Well, when I started, I was completely hooked. I mean, over the top. I had friends in high school used to kind of tease me a little bit about how I was a little obsessive compulsive about archery. And until you've experienced it, it's just hard to put into words. I think that's why, uh, you know, one of my favorite quotes from Teddy Roosevelt is, only he who has partaken thereof can appreciate the keen delight of hunting in lonely lands. And that's such a poetic way of saying what we're trying to get across that, you just have to get out there and experience it. And the first time you're within, you know, archery distance, which I would consider 60 yards and under, especially the first deer that I got a shot at that first year, I was 10 yards away from three yearlings. And I felt like my heart was pounding out of my chest. I swore they could hear my heartbeat. And I'd never seen a deer alive that close. It always been rifle shots at, you know, 150, 300, whatever yardage away. And then you see them up close when they're dead. And man, seeing them that close alive and you're trying to, out with them and their environment, that's a game changer. And I still enjoy rifle hunting. I do that a lot too. But um, there's something about bow hunting mule deer that's just, I, for me personally, nothing can match it. I, I love hunting everything, but mule deer with a bow is just top. Me too. Yeah, <laughs> same blood running through our veins. Yeah. It's such an intimate experience when you're that close to your game animal and like you say your heart's beating out of your chest but there's there's something ingrained in our dna with you know we modern human and even before that i mean a, a million years you know we've uh, we've been chasing these these deer and getting excited and it's our food source and and it sure is rewarding when you when you harvest something but uh, there is something ingrained in us that, that it, it ignites your soul. It excites you from the inside out. It just There's nothing like it on planet Earth as far as an adrenaline rush. I mean, I haven't jumped out of an airplane, but I don't <laughs> think I need to try. I no. mule deer hunting for me with a bow and arrow is enough. It, no. It's more than enough. I just love that excitement we get trying to get close and, and trying to outwit and outsmart them, um, outplay them, um, always thinking. And there's something about... Uh, when you immerse yourself in that, you know, that, that everything else melts away, all your stress melts away, yeah. and you're just focused on that task. And, the, and there's something to me 
I come back more fulfilled and knowing what's important in life. And I, it's that constant distraction and trying to outwit and outsmart. I, I just love the whole game of trying to hunt them. I, it's yeah. tough to put into words what it means, but um, it does mean everything. Mule deer with a bow is pretty fun. Oh, man. I had somebody, a reporter one time, had interviewed me when I was working for the Mule Deer Foundation and tried to pinpoint what what is it about mule deer that you're so passionate about? Is it the way the animal looks? Is it how they taste as table fare? Is it the type of country they generally live in that you're pursuing them in? Is it the time of year you're hunting them? Is it the weapon of choice? You know, what is it? And my answer was yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't pick one thing. It's they're so they're just such a special animal. You know, they they've often been called a icon of the West. And uh, I mean, even if you go back and watch old John Wayne and Clint Eastwood westerns, a lot of times they're pursuing mule deer at some point in the western or there's a mule deer reference that comes up there's one in particular i can remember uh, robert duvall uh saying in one of the westerns where they were out there pursuing mule deer and uh it's just they're a special animal they have been for a long time and i think that's why everybody's so protective of them not just because their numbers are dwindling but they're just a unique animal they live in a unique country and they're not like elk and whitetail that seem to adapt pretty much in any situation as long as they're managed for they can pretty much live anywhere mule deer just aren't that way they're picky and they're they're finicky and fussy and and uh, kind of high maintenance a little bit but man it's worth it they're they're just so cool you're right i like your answer yes all of the above <laughs> <laughs> that's about right that describes it uh, well, Brandon, you're just a wealth of information as far as mule deer. So this issue, uh, Outside the Box Mule Deer, I'm not sure if you've settled on the title. That'll come out in the Eastman's uh, Mule Deer yep. um, uh, publication there. Yeah, the annual mule deer issues are February, March issue. Okay. And, uh, of course, that's one of our big MRS issues, too. Where, I mean, the, the early part of the year has our biggest research sections in it for guys to, you know, put in for their tags and everything and even refer to them after they've drawn the tags as far as pinpointing some focuses in certain units. But um, the mule deer issue is a big one for us. It's kind of one of our keystone issues through the year. And um, there'll be some good tips and tactics. There'll be some good gear review information. And it's just a fun one to be a part of, especially, I mean, for me, years ago, if you would have told me that I'd be working for, you know, Eastman's uh, publishing, helping write a mule deer article, I'd say, you need to pinch me because I'm probably dreaming. You know, that doesn't seem like that would ever happen. And so it's it's an honor to be a part of it. It's it's exciting. Yeah, good for you. Well, yeah, I can't wait to check it out. And this will we'll try to air this episode uh, uh, to be around the same timeline as when that sure. comes out. Um, but thanks thanks a bunch for sitting down and talking to me. And we we have to do it again. I'm sure I could sit here and talk to you for another hour about mule deer hunting. I think <laughs> and and it's so cool. You know, we hunt a lot of the same country and a lot of the same terrain, but our tactics and thought process on it, it's a lot, it's similar, but there too, we have different thoughts on it. And so yeah. I learned a lot with sitting down with you today and, and talking over things. So, so thanks a bunch, man. I appreciate oh, it's it. It's been fun being here. And that's one of the beautiful things I think about hunters that have no axe to grind with each other is that we can learn from each other. I mean, there's, everybody has different experiences on the field and why reinvent the wheel you know let's let's learn from each other and and likewise you know I, every time i talk to you i pick up a little tidbit and just for the people listening when brian first started writing articles for eastman's i was asked by our editor to help uh quickly edit uh one of his articles and i realized he was a good writer when i was highlighting tips in the article instead of looking for gr grammatical errors so I, I told the the guys that are managing editor said we gotta we gotta have him do more writing because I forgot about editing I just started highlighting stuff. Uh, that was pretty cool. <laughs> well, thanks a bunch. Yeah, that's a huge compliment. I appreciate it. So uh, thanks again, Brandon. I always enjoy talking to you, and so we have to do it again here soon. Anytime. I want to sit Anytime. down and, and uh, talk over some more stuff with you. So definitely. All right. Thanks, sir. Thanks. And that's a wrap. Uh, another episode of Eastman's Elevated in the books. Um, man, oh man, I, I sure love having good conversations with knowledgeable and intelligent people like Brandon Mason. I, I just learn so much, you know, when you're able to compare theories and compare tactics, you know, and, 
and, and, and I, I know when I'm learning stuff on the podcast, I know you guys are too. And, and I had my notebook out and uh, re-listening to this and, and writing things down that I know I'm going to use in the future. So we just got to keep evolving and always learning. We're in this new age of Western hunting uh, where the more information we can gain, the, the better off we are. So, uh, And again, uh, if you like Brandon on the podcast, make sure to reach out to him and, and let him know that you enjoyed listening to him on Eastman's Elevated. Um, and I also want to thank uh, Everly Stock Packs for sponsoring the podcast and being part of this. Um, we really appreciate it, and I really like using their packs. Um, and with that, uh, I better get out on my run and, and uh, keep trying to make my goals happen for 2017. Sun's starting to go down now. It's cold. I got a north wind, so I'm going to bundle up and, and go try to get a few miles underneath me anyways. So um, until next week, uh, you guys keep working hard and, and uh, check in on you then.